Thanks for downloading Looking Glass, a podcast series from the Institute of Physics about what science can learn from other perspectives in society. I'm Angela Saini, a science journalist and author who's interested in how science sits in the world, the politics of it, the funding of it, the biases in it. In this series, I'm hosting discussions about some of the major challenges facing our world, like healthcare and inequality and big data and AI. I'll be inviting experts from different disciplines, including some physicists, to share their work to see what we can learn as we look to the future. We're starting this episode about the climate crisis with guests Dr Emily Shookborough, climate scientist and director of Cambridge Zero at the University of Cambridge, and Fatima Ibrahim, climate justice campaigner and also the co-director of Green New Deal UK. I began by asking Fatima why she's so passionate about climate change. I'm 27 years old and I was born into a climate emergency. When I was born, governments around the world were already, you know, accepting that we were living in a world that was in chaos and that our economic trajectory, to some extent, was not compatible with a livable future. Not much has been done in those 27 years, granted. But for me as a young person, it's always been a driving force to ensure that I was part of the fight to ensure there was a livable future for me and for future generations. You know, for many of us, it feels as though climate change is a pressing existential concern. But there are still those, including in certain national governments, who feel that they still need convincing, that they're not completely on the same page as everybody else. Um, Emily, just going to you first, you've worked with a British Antarctic survey. You've collected firsthand information. You've seen firsthand the effects of climate change. Do we now have all the evidence we need to convince absolutely everyone? Well, I don't know whether you're ever going to convince absolutely everyone, but the science is absolutely unequivocal. One of the pieces of evidence that I think is the most compelling does come from Antarctica. Um, that's the ice cores that we drill into the Antarctic ice sheet. And those ice cores contain in them bubbles of ancient air. We're able to recover the air going back a million years into the past. And you can see very clearly that for most of that million years, carbon dioxide levels have varied between about 180 and 280 parts per million. Today, they're venturing up towards 415 parts per million. That's vastly outside that natural range of variability that we've seen for such a long period of time. It extends you know, beyond history into prehistory. I think that is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence we have that, that, that today's changes are simply unprecedented. And Fatima, coming to you, what was it that really convinced you that you had to work on this and nothing else, that, that the evidence was so overwhelming? There's a lot of things I'm passionate about, and I think my approach to entering climate activism very much came through human rights. And I, I felt connected to people around the world. I'm a global citizen. I'm also, you know, a young Black Muslim woman who was born in Canada, moved to the UK, has Somali parents. And I was fortunate enough at a really young age to start organizing with young people from South Africa to Brazil to the Maldives, and particularly remember a conversation with young people in the Maldives who were fighting for their lives. 
in their lifetime, their islands will or could go underwater if we don't keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. And for me, coming from the UK and growing up where we are facing climate impacts, but it doesn't occupy my everyday thoughts, thinking about what are the climate impacts that I'm going to face? Is my home going to be flooded? Are there going to be increasing weather impacts? Um, And to meet people who live that reality, I think was a wake-up call to me. And I needed to ensure that not only do I secure the future for myself, my family, my neighbours, but also for other young people like me who are living on the front lines of the climate crisis. When we see stories about, for example, year on year, it feels like our summers are getting hotter and hotter. There's wildfires happening in certain parts of the world. It does feel as though the... Um, threat of climate change is kind of pushing closer and closer to us personally. And it can be very disturbing. But what is it like for you emotionally to have been in a place like the Maldives and seen firsthand the kind of horrors of, of it close up? I've quite often struggled to balance hope and fear. I think the science is overwhelming, the impacts are overwhelming, and that can consume you with fear. But hope is a choice. I've always believed that hope is a choice. And it's a choice that particularly us in the UK need to make because we have the biggest opportunity to change the trajectory of the planet. Um, We come from a major economy. We are historically responsible for the climate crisis. And I'm excited to hear that Emily has sort of made that switch and is talking about solutions because the science does point towards solutions. It does point to an alternative future. And I don't think actually until the last two years, I've genuinely believed that there was an alternative. And it's because in the last two years, because of the climate strikers and the hope and energy that they've brought to the streets, that we've opened up this space where we're talking about tangible solutions. What does a different economy look like? What does a different future look like? So I feel hopeful, but that doesn't mean I, that isn't a struggle that I grapple with every day. I just want to ask you, Emily, also, being in the Antarctic, seeing close up what's happening there, what kind of emotional journey have you gone through? Mm. Well, I mean, the polar regions are where some of the greatest changes on the planet are occurring. So the amount of retreat of the sea ice in the Arctic or the melting of the of the West Antarctic ice sheet, the scale of, of what can happen there is just unbelievable. And it's very easy to think that these are really remote places. But what happens in the Antarctic or in the Arctic has a direct impact on us here in the UK and in other countries around the world through sea level rise or through uh, the impact it has uh, on our changing weather patterns. So, uh, you know, there is something about going to those those regions, um, which is an imp- incredible privilege to be able to go and visit, but to see firsthand the scale of the changes, to to map that across to the actual data that we're um, gathering, and 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 uh, it really brings home the scale of the threat that we're facing. So moving on to solutions then, Fatima, your work is kind of focused on building a sustainable economic ecosystem that will help tackle this climate emergency, what you call the Green New Deal. Can you tell us more about it? What is that? 
Yeah, the Green New Deal takes its inspiration from the 1930s in the U.S. when the president then, Franklin D. Roosevelt, came into power and was facing two crises, an ecological crisis in the way of the Dust Bowl and an economic crisis in the way of the Great Depression. Uh, And the way he tackled that is by bringing finance under control and really putting the reins back on the economy and the financial sector and putting it to work for people and planet. And he created jobs for people to rehabilitate the natural environment while giving them livelihoods. And it's that sort of systemic approach that we need to look at the entire economic system and make it work for people and planet that is at the heart of the Green New Deal. And now in 2020, what we're saying is we need the, that same sort of scale of program to tackle the climate crisis, that we can totally decarbonize our economy and have this national action plan, but at the same time deliver good jobs for people, good quality of life, to question the growth assumptions in our economy, that actually we have more than enough resources They're just going to few people. Resources that we are cultivating need to be equally distributed, not just in our country, but globally. Um, And that's what the Green New Deal is. And we have 10 principles, you know, that range from creating millions of new jobs in retrofitting and restoring our natural carbon sinks to putting controls on the city and the financial sector and putting democracy back at the driving seat to ensuring that our government is leading at a global level and asking and answering the difficult question about how do we redistribute wealth and technology to the global South in order for them to be able to have a transition and economic future that's fair. So walk me through this, because it sounds so idealistic and so exciting at the same time, but what exactly would your proposals be then? What, you know, in practical terms, would you like to see happen? So in practical terms, the brilliance of the Green New Deal is none of the policies are new. Many of the investment programs that the government needs to undertake in the green economy are things that people have been campaigning for over the last decade. The difference in the Green New Deal is it's one big plan. What we're saying is we can't tinker around the edges. You can't put a bit of money here for green spaces, put a bit of money here for cycling, a bit of money here thinking about decarbonizing and think that that is the total sum of the action that we need to take, but that we need a comprehensive plan that gets rid of those contradictions. For example, the government has invested in cycling and increasing public transport, but has put $27 billion towards expanding the road networks. A Green New Deal would seek to sort of answer those contradictions. The other thing at the heart of the Green New Deal is putting a question and finding an answer to the economic problem, which is currently we have a city that is out of control and we have an economy that is tethered to growing, that we need to continue to keep growing in order for our economy to be viable. And what we're saying is there's only a finite amount of natural resources in the world and inequality is worsening despite us growing. So we need new indicators of long-term viability for our economy. And we need to put those new indicators could be around well-being. It could be about a care economy. Um, Those are the sort of solutions that the Green New Deal is putting forward. Emily, it sounds from what Fatima is saying that there are very simple solutions out there. It's about reorganising how economies work and how systems are planned at the moment. So this is doable stuff. Why are we not doing it? (laughs) 
Well, I mean, we are starting on that journey. So, you know, what are the big challenges? The big challenges are to find ways of heating our homes that don't produce uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And, w- and we know that we need to move towards using heat pumps, for example, to heat our homes. That technology is there. We know that we need to be moving to electric vehicles. And again, the technology is there. We've got to roll out the right infrastructure to deliver that. But but we basically know how to do that. So if you go across the different aspects of the economy that we know that we need to change, either the technology is already there or we, we can see it in the in the future. And that technological development needs to be accompanied by two things. It needs to be accompanied by the right government support to ensure that we do have the right infrastructure, the right policies and the right incentives for for ensuring that we see a rapid transition to a decarbonised world. But it also involves all of us changing our own behaviours. But I don't think that needs to be in a way that is... That, that actually, you know, it's not about all suddenly putting on hair shirts and sandals. It's not about living a, a more difficult lifestyle. We're, we're sitting here at the moment. I'm sitting in my own bedroom doing this um, interview. We've all cha- been forced to change our lifestyles very dramatically, forced to travel significantly less over the last few months. Now, in some, some aspects, that's been very difficult. But there have been other aspects where actually, frankly, it's been a bit easier And I think one of them is the increased use of of virtual conferencing, which we might all be a bit fed up of being on permanent uh, virtual conferences at the moment. But there are some advantages and us having to travel less saves time, saves money. It it just makes it altogether easier from a logistical point of view um, to undertake some of your work commitments. So... I, th- I think you know the challenge here is how can we rapidly transform to a more sustainable, more resilient, more inclusive society and do so in a way that works for everyone, is better for everyone. I have seen um, uh, climate change campaigners this year surprised that governments have been able to act so quickly and so decisively around COVID-19 and yet not show that same kind of resolution when it comes to climate change. Fatima, uh, is this a problem that you've also recognised? Yeah, I think what has been interesting for me to find out and read about is actually scientists have been warning about a pandemic for years and governments didn't listen. And if anything, we've seen around the world and particularly with the Trump administration, they've gutted the institutions and the departments that were responsible for protecting people um, when it comes to a pandemic. So that's one learning is that we should be listening to the science and the climate crisis is very different to the pandemic in that once we hit tipping points, ecological tipping points, and once we reach a point of runaway climate change, there isn't going to be a vaccine that the governments could uh, work together quickly to try and bring to save us. So that's one lesson I think we need to take away immediately is that we need to start listening to the science. Picking up on what you just said, I want to ask Emily then, how close are we to this tipping point? If if governments aren't likely to act decisively until they know that it's happening, how close are we to getting to that level? 
Well, I mean, arguably, it's pretty obvious that climate change is happening. We're seeing that in the impacts of extreme weather around the world, where there's an increased risk of heat waves, of flooding, of wildfires. I've already mentioned the melting that we're seeing at vast extent in terms of the Arctic sea ice, but also glaciers um, around the world. So I, I think the idea that, that, that we're not already seeing the impacts of climate change is entirely wrong. It's quite clear from the science that if we increase the amount of warming, then we only increase and increase significantly the scale of those threats, those um, threats both to to lives and livelihoods, um, to the natural world, but also increase the risk of catastrophic changes occurring. And so the sort of thing that I would describe as being a catastrophic change would be the collapse of the vast ice sheets covering Greenland or West Antarctica, the release of vast stores of frozen methane from from the Arctic. Methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide itself and so would result in a significant acceleration of climate change or the rapid dieback of the Amazon rainforest. Um, again, the Amazon rainforest currently soaks up vast quantities of carbon dioxide. And so if it's switched to turning into a savanna, we no longer have that natural sink of carbon, um, again, accelerating climate change. Now, all those potentially catastrophic changes, we know that they have occurred in the pot. We know that they could occur. And so it's very clear that as we increase the temperature, we increase a whole range of risks. There have been in the US certain politicians like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez who have backed the idea of a new Green Deal. Um, Fatima, where are you seeing the support from now in the corridors of power? So last year, um, there was a lot of success in getting the Labour Party to champion the Green New Deal, and it was in their manifesto going into an election. And actually, the Labour Party had the most ambitious climate plans of a major political party in the world last year. So that's exciting. And that's uh, due to the campaigning and enthusiasm of both young Labour supporters, but also just young people uh, in the way of the climate strikers. The Green Party also supports a Green New Deal in the UK. And so does Plaid Cymru. So there are, you know, lots of parties in this country, opposition parties that support the Green New Deal. So the challenge for us is, how do we get elements at least of the Green New Deal pushed by this government over the next few years, because we can't wait. Our organizing strategy can't be built around election cycles because the climate climate change is not going to wait every time for us to vote every four years. And what's exciting is the government is talking about a green recovery. The government is talking about Build Back Better. They even went as so far as talking about a new deal for Britain in July. They are understanding that green wins votes. You know, credible climate action wins votes. The next stage is getting them to deliver an ambitious stimulus plan uh, for the green economy. And do you feel that the climate movement in the West is inclusive enough, that it's representative? I mean, that's an easy answer. No, we have a long way to go. I think we've come some way, but still we have a long way to go, particularly because I believe that we need everyone to change everything. And in order to have everyone be a part of this movement, they need to see themselves represented. They need to see their issues and their fears represented. And I don't think the climate movement has been great about telling an inclusive story. Um, For many years, Climate movements 
focused on, you know, recycling or like green things, what the Green New Deal has done and why I've been so excited to be working on this for the past year and a half is that it's moving things out of the green space and into the social justice space. That climate change is a social justice issue. That means supporting people so that they're able to earn a good livelihood and pay for the things they need, but also making sure they have access to green spaces and clean air. It's about all of those things. And it isn't just about the green issues. And that means we've been able to reach more demographics and more communities. Emily, I want to come to you um, around this issue of inclusivity. As a scientist, in one of our episodes, we were looking at Indigenous science, for instance, and there are many Indigenous researchers and scholars around the world who for a very long time, for many decades, have been arguing that we need to look at sustainable practices that exist in other knowledge systems, for example, among Aboriginal Australian land management and wildfire management. Um, there, We know that there are more sustainable ways to live outside the West. Do you think Western scientists have for for too long maybe ignored that? Um, I don't know whether I can uh, particularly comment on whether or not we've ignored it, but I but I absolutely agree that it's important. Um, it's important on both sides. So, uh, I, you know, as we were talking about earlier, I visited both the Antarctic and the Arctic. And of course, the difference in the Arctic is that people actually live in the Arctic, whereas they don't other than scientists, in the Antarctic. And I've always found it incredibly powerful to speak to those local people who are living through the scales and the changes. Uh, You know, it's that combination of hearing the personal testimonies of the changes that are occurring together with the hard scientific data that is so compelling. And then, as you you absolutely rightly say, in the the same token, you know, we know that we need to be looking to ways of living more sustainably on this planet to use our resources more sustainably to transition to, to I, I guess, a, a society where we're living on the planet rather than off the planet, if you, if you like. And if we can learn lessons from other communities about how to do that more effectively, then we absolutely should. I mean, yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think this comes back to the question about how do we feel and what makes us hopeful is what makes me hopeful is that the solutions exist both at a policy level, but also at a practical level. There are entire communities who are living in harmony with the planet. There are entire communities who have a different philosophy in in terms of the way that we should live with nature. And that gives me hope that we're not just spinning around trying to create solutions to a problem and those solutions just don't exist. They exist. They just require cooperation. They require empowering communities so that they can be a part of the decision-making process. Because even at the UK level, uh, a few months ago, I was in Doncaster speaking to communities who had been flooded. And in talking to them about what the government should do, they had all of the solutions. (laughs) They intimately understood why they were being flooded and all of the different, both, you know, hard defense and soft defense tactics the government should use. That exists everywhere that people are facing impacts. They intimately understand what is happening and they also have the solutions. And that is reason for hope. Yeah, I just because I I want to in this portion just get a sense of what has been overlooked in the response to climate change. And like you said, Fatima, one of the issues has been inclusivity, that certain demographics have been overlooked, but also globally 
the areas of the world that are being hit the hardest, sometimes some of those parts of the world also have some of the best solutions in in among the scientists that they have working locally, among indigenous people who have for many thousands of years in some cases uh, developed very sustainable practical relationships with the land. So for example, I remember when I was in Australia and I was speaking to Aboriginal researchers there, they were telling me about these incredible systems of land management, which feel invisible when you're navigating the land, but they've been there for so long. um, And they have a relationship with the land that only now are some Western scientists starting to learn from and, and have the humility to kind of draw lessons from. And that is, you know, that's the case all over the world. So for you, then, you know, what has, what have been the blind spots and where do we need to kind of look next to learn lessons? An issue the climate movement has had for a really long time is that the climate movement has replicated the same, you know, both in the way that it looks, but also in the way that makes decisions the people who are making decisions already in power. You know, it's been filled with white middle-class people and all of the solutions that make sense to those communities. But what makes me hopeful is that all of the solutions we need to change this trajectory and for us to avoid climate chaos already exist in the world. There are entire communities who have philosophies um, and do practice a way of living that is in harmony with Mother Earth, that have very intimate understanding of the impacts that they're facing and solutions that we should be listening to and enacting on a, on a larger scale. Emily, for you, I mean, we know that Western science is very heavily uh, male-dominated. Um, it's, of course, very white and middle-class, as Fatima says. Do you think this leads to blind spots when it comes to looking for climate change solutions? Well, again, I can't say whether or not it leads to blind spots, but I can certainly say that uh, as within any possible venture, diversity is good. If we're looking for solutions and a diversity of solutions, then it can only help having people with a diversity of backgrounds and experiences to help to try and identify what those solutions might be. So I, I, I think it's a sort of, you know... Uh, coming back to, the, to a phrase that um, Fatima used earlier in the, in the context of response to climate change, I think it's just common sense. Um, I want to kind of, uh, you know, this is a podcast that's uh, commissioned by the IOP and physicists and scientists will be listening to this. And I think many of them will be thinking, what are the most exciting technological, scientific uh, innovations that we have out there that that might help mitigate climate change. Emily, can you give us some insight into them? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a huge range of different things. So if we look on the um, energy side of things, there's lots of advances at the moment in terms of batteries, battery storage um, technologies. Um, we've seen huge advances in recent years in terms of photovoltaics, and there's still lots of opportunities for further advances in that in that context, um, looking in the direction, for example, of solar glass, but many others as well. We've been speaking already about um, the future of electric vehicles, but more generally, um, it's not just a, a, a car transport, but there's also some exciting programs looking to see how we might be able to look to to uh, zero carbon flight, zero carbon aviation. 
So sorry, sorry to interrupt, but what would zero carbon aviation look like? What would what would be powering a plane? Well, either either electric planes or um, or hydrogen or using um, synthetic fuels. Uh, one of the other on on the synthetic fuel side of things, one of the other um, exciting elements of research, which is very much in its early stages um, in Cambridge, is looking at how we could try to develop artificial photosynthesis to generate um, synthetic fuels and other chemical products. There's exciting research looking at how we might be able to use natural materials as construction products um, to uh, to replace what, what we currently use is large amounts of both cement and steel, which both produce large amounts of um, emissions. So there's, you know, across the board, everywhere you look, there are huge opportunities for making technological advances. And that makes it a really exciting space to be working in, to be researching in. And we we were talking um, at the start here about how responding to climate change can help support a green recovery from the current pandemic. Well, in large part, it can help support a green recovery because we're looking at uh, the jobs of the future arising from the technological developments of today. And it's not just in terms of the engineering technologies, it's also in terms of how we can look uh, look to nature-based solutions. Um, And that in itself is another whole area of exciting research. How can we um, look to restore landscapes in a way that is both positive for biodiversity, positive for the natural world, but also has a significant positive climate contribution as well in terms of increasing the amount of organic content in soils, for example. So if we come back to the question of do we have hope, one of the key reasons why I have hope is because actually I think responding to climate change is a hugely exciting opportunity. And for you personally, then, if you, if there's one technology that you would love to see uh, come to fruition for us all to be using, is there one out there <laughs> that you're just wedded to? <laughs> oh, you know what? In this whole space, there are no silver magic bullets. Um, yeah, I, and I think that that really comes back to some of the things that Fatima has also been stressing. This is about looking across all technologies. It's about looking across all aspects of our behaviour. It's about reimagining our entire philosophy of life. Life, uh, so that we aren't looking towards uh, continual growth, but instead we're looking at uh, trying to value new measures of prosperity that do uh, include uh, aspects of our our own personal and collective well-being, as well as the well-being of the of the natural worlds that help support us. I have a question for Emily. Something that I am both concerned about, but interested to hear um, your view on. Moving to renewables, I think most people think, you know, that's the solution and that's all we need to do. But we need to sort of contextualize that, I think. Renewables are also resource intensive. Uh, The batteries for electric vehicles, for example, are going to require huge amounts of cobalt and lithium. And those are already being extracted in parts of the world where there is conflict over those resources. So what role do you think scientists play in contextualizing the solutions that they're putting forward? 
Yeah, no, that's a really good question. And again, I, I'm not sure I would describe it in so much as contextualise as uh, that, you know, an entire systems perspective needs to be taken in terms of um, uh, looking at any of these solutions. Um, I, we were talking a minute ago about nature-based solutions. And, you know, it's critically important to look to uh, nature-based solutions that do deliver for biodiversity. They don't have negative impacts um, in terms of biodiversity if you're looking at the ways in which you're wanting to help support climate change. And, and you're absolutely right in terms of battery technologies, making sure we look at where the impacts of the resources that are required to make those batteries um, are all part of the greater system. You know, we can't separate, take one thing out of context to the rest of them. I absolutely agree with you. Fatima, I get the sense that behind your question, you're wondering whether some of the technologies that are being developed are there to allow us to live the way we do now, but just consume less energy. Whereas for you, the New Green Deal is about really changing how we live altogether. Yeah, completely. And I think the thing that I often ask myself is, are the solutions that I'm championing false solutions? Are they ones that just sustain the status quo that make us feel happy because we're going to be able to live exactly the same way? Or are these solutions fundamentally changing the way we live and delivering justice? And that is the question that we need to, to answer because without answering it, what we risk doing is just changing how we power our lives, but still have rampant inequality, still extract huge amounts from our planet, and then don't actually avoid the climate crisis. And that's, I think that's why I was asking Emily that question, because it's not often asked. And I think that's one of the things that we need to caveat when we're talking about um, this move to new technology. One question I have for you, Fatima, is... You know, obviously, I've been working in climate science for a very long time, and it's always felt up until now that it's been very difficult to communicate um, to a wider audience the scale of the threat posed by climate change. We've, you know, we've struggled and struggled to get that message across. And in part because I think for many people, climate change has seemed like a distant threat, a threat that either affects people um, in other parts of the world or a threat that will affect people's children and grandchildren rather than them themselves. And so it's been, to be honest, really quite frustrating from a climate science perspective perspective, um, that it just has been so difficult to get people to understand the scale of the of the risks that climate change poses. Now, it's, you know, it has felt as though over the last 18 months, maybe um, two years, that the rise of the climate strike movement, Greta Thunberg, um, and in particular, the voices of a very large number of young people around the world is starting to break through that. But I wonder whether you have any lessons to convey back to the climate science community as to how we can continue that so that people really do start to recognise and then respond to the scale of the threat. That's a great question. Um, and I feel your frustration. And I don't think those of us who've been working on climate campaigning um, have been that far off in terms of our struggle of trying to get the public on board and to understand it. I think a learning is, and it's a continual learning, is like, how do we communicate the science? The first person I have seen 
bridge that gap and communicate the science in a way that's undeniable, in a way that lives in all of our homes and people talk about is Greta Thunberg. She says, I'm not here to, to tell you anything that the science isn't. The science is clear. And that has made me think about what we could learn in terms of taking the complexity of the science and all of the unknowns and finding moral messengers or find placing it in a place of moral messaging that lands that I can understand, that my mother can understand, that our children can understand. Um, I think that's the gap that we need to bridge is that there's lots of great work happening, but that great work doesn't go anywhere unless it lives in our homes, unless we can understand it and communicate it. And I'm one of the people who's to blame for that. I, the, my engagement with science has been, I accept the science, I no longer need to engage with it. I accept the science, I no longer need to communicate <laughs> the science. I just need to tell people it's real. Uh, but that doesn't work for everyone. Not everybody has that journey to acceptance and we shouldn't take the acceptance of science for granted, particularly in the political environment that we live in now, where there is a question mark over facts and science. We need to be better at communicating it. And that's both for people in the scientific community, but that's also for campaigners. And if that means we have to work more closely together, then I think that's something that we need to do. I mean, Emily, coming back to you, the climate sceptic movement is is pretty powerful as well. And it accompanies this kind of, as Fatima says, this rise of misinformation, lack of trust in authority, including sometimes scientists themselves. How do you deal with that? Um, well, I, I mean, I think that from a scientific perspective, we just have to keep going back to the science. I mean, you know, science is in the business of facts. That's what we do. And, uh, and, and so I think it is about honestly and transparently trying our best to communicate those facts. There's not, you know, what, what, more, what more can we do? Um, I, I do think that, that actually a, a really critical component of that is the open and transparent nature. That's one of the things that I think is, you know, if we really want to try to do our, our most to build trust, then ensuring that we embed open, transparent processes throughout what all that we do is a, is a critical component of that. Yeah, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day, and her partner is one of the scientists who's involved in helping us tackle this pandemic. And she was talking about the struggles that him and his colleagues were having because they're now entering a new territory of becoming public communicators and how a lot of scientists don't go into science to become public servants in that way. Um, people who go into politics go in with the frame of mind that they are going to be communicating to the public. Um, it's a whole host of skills and also uh, acceptance of all of the downfalls and pitfalls that come along with being in the public eye. I think that something we're going to have to start accepting is that scientists are moving into the public realm. They are going to, in some way, um, be involved in communicating the science and building that credibility. Um, and it can't rely on interlocutors or other communicators to do that. That's just the nature of, I think, the world that we're moving into is that people are needing faces. And I really sympathize, I guess, with the scientific community because that it is really challenging, particularly with the misinformation that we are, are facing. But I think that's where the climate movement can become an ally and can support our scientific communities. And uh, to just as Greta has said it, you know, the science is clear. 
believe the science. The science is clear. Believe scientists um, is, is what we could be doing to support that community. Emily, why do you think it took someone like Greta Thunberg to, to do that? Why wasn't it a scientist that everybody is looking to who's traveling around the world and whose message, who is the oracle in the way that she has been? You know, I don't know. Um, it's not through lack of trying on the part of, of scientists. We've been, we have been communicating the scale of the challenge for a very long time. The first IPCC, first Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, came out in the early 1990s, uh, and that very clearly articulated the scale of the challenge. Now, perhaps uh, the IPCC report didn't make it into most people's living rooms in the way that um, that, that Greta has been able to to reach and I think that's the the difference but it's not it's not through lack of trying. Emily do you think I mean this is sort of throwing back the question that was asked to me a bit earlier in terms of how do we make the scientific community more diverse and is that our gateway to making sure that science breaks through is if there are more people from more communities across different age ranges that are involved in producing and communicating the science that that might help us uh, make sure that the science is landing with the general public? I mean, I think that there are starting to be more and more citizen science projects, uh, more and more ways to uh, that people, everyone can get involved in the scientific process, not just, uh, I might add, in terms of climate science, but many other aspects of science as well. And those are uh, only to be encouraged. I think though, that there is another important point that we ought to acknowledge, you know, in, associated with this, and that is that just knowing more about the science is not necessarily going to lead to people changing their behaviours in the way that is required to respond to climate change. And and there's a distinction. You know, we might, it, I think it's, it's very um, laudable and very valuable in order to try to hope to raise public awareness of scientific issues. But that's quite different to trying to encourage a general societal shift to a lower intensity lifestyle that is more in harmony with the world that sustains us. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining me and good luck with your efforts. I know it's an uphill struggle, but more power to you both. Thank you. <laughs> it's always nice to speak to you, Fatima. Looking Glass is a Chalk and Blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Fatuma Keira. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. Original music by Alex Port-Felix. Sound mix by Nicola Rofast. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan. And the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless. <laughs> <laughs>